Hello, everyone. This is John McDonald. Uh, I am back here for the next episode of our June Jubilee of Marvel's Leading Men. Uh, we're talking about uh, the leading men of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So this isn't going to include people like Charlie Cox's Daredevil, but it will include some surprises. Um, <laughs> I guess if we end up wanting to talk about Charlie Cox, we can. Uh, I'm not going to stop us, obviously. Uh, but we just, there are so many films to talk about with so many potential leading men that you kind yeah. of have to make a choice. Um, mm. Which is one of the things we're probably going to touch on today. I'm here again with my fabulous, lovely co-host, uh, Magnus, who has made everyone's dreams come true with a special uh, celebration thing that you sent out to all of us that wished you a happy birthday. So happy birthday <laughs> again. Just my little gift to everyone from the birthday boy. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. So we're going to get started here again today. So a couple of things that I kind of want to bring up before we get started. Mm -hmm. um, yep. There's kind of a fine line in Marvel movies that we're going to start seeing where they're going to start becoming formulaic, uh, where they're still very grand, but they're not very camp. They start to feel more like DC properties. Um, the X-Men mm -hmm. universe is kind of the... Uh, the X-Men universe is kind of on its own, as it is normally in the Marvel universe. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about the X-Men in a different episode. But when you think about Marvel movies from the 2012 point on, it starts to feel formulaic. It starts to feel safe. Uh, when Aaron, Tyler jo Aaron Taylor Johnson comes back as Quicksilver after being in 2010's Kick-Ass, which is also a Marvel property, mm. it has a really different feel. Um, it doesn't take as much risks. It's not as camp. It doesn't really push in that direction. It's very real. Even with CGI, there's this real concerted effort for realism, for Oscar nominations. And while that's good, there are some drawbacks to that. Um, mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about Marvel films and leading men and leading villains that are male, we start to see more Shakespeare and less you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as, as Mr. Freeze. Uh, and it's not necessarily good or bad. It's really about what you want out of your superhero experience. Mm -hmm. I will say the one person that gets shafted, no matter how you look at this, is Andrew Garfield as the Amazing Spider-Man, which is where I think we should start, because that's where we ended. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. this poor part of the franchise, I think if Andrew Garfield hadn't been open about Peter Parker potentially being bisexual, he probably would have got more screen time or they would have shifted some things around. So I think it was partially that Marvel wasn't comfortable with queer superheroes, really. Because yes. uh, really the only queer superheroes we have we're going to find uh, that are open are going to be in the Deadpool movies coming up. But there are no real queer Marvel leading men outside of fan art, really. Uh, like I said, North Star isn't really a part of the X-Men universe. Mm. They're not playing up Wolverine being bisexual at all. It's all in subtext. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and Bobby's not even out in the comics at this point. So, really, I feel like the reason uh, the Amazing Spider-Man films aren't as well-remembered is because they kind of shoved them so they'd be forgotten, both of them. Mm -hmm. And then Andrew Garfield's like, yeah, Peter Parker could be bisexual. And the Marvel executives were like, no. I feel it's a few different things. For one thing, um, <clears throat> as at this point, um, the MCU's really kicked off. Um, 
I think by uh, by this point, we've when we get the the Avengers been come and gone, it was absolutely massive beyond words. I think Disney and Marvel were suspected. Did Disney own Marvel at this point? I forget. Uh, I think... Disney's first Marvel film is The Avengers in 2012. Right. So this is the point where they now officially own it. They haven't bought Lucasfilm, so they don't own Star Wars, all of Star Wars yet, but they're getting ah, there. So right. they've just started their conglomerization. Okay. So in my head, a few different points come up. So yeah. that's so you might see the tunnel shift because of Disney's involvement and Disney realizing that they're seeing all of the um, attention towards the Avengers. I think the Avengers were always known about, certainly within comic book circles and a little bit within popular culture um, from the different cartoons that we'd had over the years. But as a as the popular superhero team, I think that solidified it in many people's minds. Yeah, they and... were not popular before these films. Even in Marvel mm -hmm. canon, Iron Man, even in like Final Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they did the big crossover, where Robin and Jubilee hooked up. Um, yeah. Everyone but really Thor was kind of a joke. Thor was kind of off on his own, I feel like. Before before this, these set of films, like people did not take the Avengers seriously in Marvel no. Marvel lore that that I can think of at least. But then suddenly you get these portrayals which people jump onto, like um, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, Chris, Chris Hemsworth as Thor. They become in a way so linked to the portrayals of these characters that you know that decades after this they're going to be seen as. Pretty much like how Henry Carvel is with Superman, pretty much an archetype now of yeah. the character. Um, so I think Disney and Marvel took notice, and this is probably why we start to see the tonal shift into more they, because they now they focus on becoming big, dominating blockbusters from yeah. this point onwards, and we start to see them slowly developing it from like one marvel movie into like two every year <laughs> yeah 2013 is the last year where we have three or less marvel movies after 2013 we start getting five six seven a year including animated not including stuff on streaming services mm -hmm. and so you start to see the exhaustion but you start to see the formula uh so when loki comes back in a later thor film They've mm. kind of tamped down on how eccentric he is, but they've upped his like Shakespearean bad guy quotient, so he says a lot more. But he also mm -hmm. starts to really vibe with his brother Thor, which you don't feel in you know the first Thor movie, and you don't really feel that in the Avengers no. so much when he's the bad guy. And it's it's not a one eighty because. Loki's personality has always been like a million places all over the place, but it is influenced yeah. by fans, or at least what the Marvel executives think the fans want. Um, and I'd argue that version of Loki is the successful one, is the one that takes over Asgard. Hmm. I mean, it helped a lot that, as you say, fan favorite villain, yeah. um, Tom, um, I'm going to get his surname wrong, um, Hiddleston. Hiddleston, yeah. It helps that Tom Hiddleston is quite easy on the eye as well. 
And he's, um, a, uh, he's a really great actor, too. It's not just that he yeah. plays a really handsome Loki. It's mm-hmm. that if you see Tom in other things like Night Manager and in my favorite Tom Hiddleston film, and not just because he's naked, I think it's called High Rise. Uh, mm-hmm. You really see that Tom Hiddleston comes from a theater tradition. And so even in a CGI green screen room, he has the ability to move his body and feel a presence that is yeah. hard to do with green screen, which is what Marvel movies are going to start to rely on more and more and not really going to places of being on a set and being very alienated. Um, this is where Marvel movies stop being fun and start to feel like jury duty service for actors that want a paycheck. Um, and while there are some standouts, 2013's I, Iron Man 3 is far out competing both the Wolverine and Thor The Dark World, which are the two other Marvel movies mm-hmm. that year. So, I mean, I'd argue that you are going to have um, different levels of quality in any massive franchise. Um, I really enjoyed Captain America and the Winter Soldier. I thought that was a great chance for um, Chris Evans to really it continued developing um cap cap's character and how he feels within this new world he finds himself within but then also to give him a chance for not one but two different potential shipping <laughs> um partners and such yes between mm-hmm. between sam and then uh oh bucky that's it um yeah. oh, i forget bucky for a second well there was bucky there was sam people were shaping him with tony and yeah. so the the way that Steve's character kind of ends and goes back in time, we'll, we'll get to that. But yeah, they definitely, yeah. Marvel definitely tanked the arc they were building. Um, mm. I really yeah. like the Amazing Spider-Man films. And I'm really sad for it. Mm. I'm happy Andrew Garfield yeah. got to came, come back, but I'm really sad because both the Amazing Sp- the Amazing Spider-Man has to follow the Avengers, and the Amazing Spider-Man Two has to follow Captain America: The Winter Soldier, arguably hey. the best loved classic of the of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, arguably. And so the, these poor, this poor, this poor little part of the franchise that I mm. want because I love Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy too. Um, mm. I loved the idea that it's more of this like pseudo spy thriller and they're doing like private investigator work. It's very like Harry Dresden. Uh, and I think Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker carries whimsy that even Marvel comics doesn't seem to give mm. Peter. Cause they just want to like use him as the universal whipping boy. But <laughs> Andrew Garfield always felt like he was fun. Toby felt like he was taking a mantle. Tom Holland has kind of the vibe of being not the understudy but being the one that's kind of learning and Andrew Garfield is the one that I there's like there's sorrow but there's also whimsy these Mm. Spider-Man movies for me are the fun ones if Toby's laying the groundwork this is adding decor into the house um and these are a little more pop these are a little more colorful Mm. um the villains are really interesting um I, I really do think that it's a shame that we didn't get more of the amazing Spider-Man because I think I, mm. that was very successful for free. And Andrew Garfield is not bad to look at either. I, I appreciate no. Andrew Garfield. So I feel um so I should make it clear that I'm agreeing with you that I really like Andrew as yeah. a Peter here. And I do think it's criminal that he didn't get more screen time. 
Um, he seemed to have got quite a nice amount of new attention from um, No Way Home. So it yeah. could with with Marvel seeming to now be trying to like recapture all the previous canon into variants and such. Yeah. It could well be work as a backdoor to bring him for a third movie, but we'll have to see all the nonsense with Sony and all the complicated rights issues and such. Yeah. That's a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> I would like to actually do an episode on No Way Home. Uh, because I mm. think both the way they tell the story and the nostalgia of it is one of the few times it's successful. Mm. And so I definitely want to put a pin in New Way and No Way Home and come back to that um, at some point. Yeah, it's it's certainly quite a little bit different to anything else that the MCU had done um, at that point. Um, I won't let us get too distracted. We'll get back to the main juice of everything in a second. <laughs> but yes, I agree with you. Um, it's certainly very interesting because it's sort of like it's an entry in the Marvel in Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's also an ode and a tribute to the earlier works and to Spider-Man as a whole. So it, it really stands as its own thing, actually. I would argue, too, that this is one of the last actual comic book films the MCU does. Because mm. as much as we love Age of Ultron, as much as we love Civil War, as much as even we love Gardens of Galaxy, they have this sense of realism that I feel the Amazing Spider-Man and the X-Men series, the X-Men Days of Future Past, the, the younger X-Men series, really, like, really understands it's a comic book property, so they add saturation and color. Um, for me, part of the Marvel formula that I start to see is the DCification of things that they mm. did with Batman Begins, where they start to make Gotham so realistic that, like, mm. they're correcting too far. And as much as I love Captain America Civil War, and as much as I love like all the stunts, it starts to feel like a stage show where they're doing stunts more than a comic book film to mm. me. And that's not bad. That there's definitely places for that. But like until we get back to like uh Thor um Ragnarok, where where we get that weird sexual tension between Chris Pratt and Chris Hemsworth, um I think that's the one where they finally meet. There's just this, there's a sense to me that I start to see Marvel being afraid of having a comic book film. Um, yeah. And that doesn't work because now we're going to get where we get. So I really wanted to like the Wolverine in 2013 because I don't really have a connection with Iron Man. And I think the Wolverine's mm. kind of Japanese samurai heritage saga stuff is really interesting, but it's so realistic and it's so heavy. Mm. And like five other people saw the Wolverine and none of us had a good time. And it makes me so sad. And five people saw Thor the Dark World and nobody had a good time. It makes me sad because I love <laughs> Jane Foster. Uh, and so like we get to 2013, the last where we're going to get the last of just having three in a year. And Iron Man 3, the one I don't connect with, is probably most successful, probably most well-liked. Um, I, I like Robert as Tony now. But, like, it was a big deal to cast him as Iron Man in that first Iron <laughs> Man film. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think people think about he was not always Iron Man. He was not always in a good space war. It was a big deal. Mm. And so by Iron Man 3, he is now Tony Stark, but he wasn't always. Um, no. He's still not my favorite leading man, but, you know, that's a personal thing. 
And you're not wrong if you love him. He's just, you know, he's fine. He's just not, he's just not for me. It's fine. Mm. Well, to make a quick point about that, the fact is that Marvel's done a good job of creating so many leading men that there's quite a lot of choice for you to find someone that you personally have a connection with. Um, you know, some people say, oh, I really enjoyed Chris Evans as Cap. I enjoyed um, Tom Holland as Peter, Chris Hemsworth, etc. Or one of the multitude of, it's still important, but dare I say secondary leading yeah. male characters. Because, um, <clears throat> let's be honest, um, the Falcon and War Machine, like, for quite a long time, they were very much background, like, supporting characters. Yeah. to the main Avengers cast like eventually Falcon got elevated and such and I think War Machine is this they still got plans for him in some capacity um yeah. but they were a second fiddle um I wanted to touch what you said about the Wolverine <clears throat> we yes. touched on this last time um by this point with the Wolverine if you look at the movie posters for it you'll see Hugh Jackman completely ripped claws out with Ugh. a katana on the front covers. Or At this point, they're oh, selling the sex appeal yeah. for Wolverine. That is the testosterone draw to the male gaze. The male gaze there. Poor Hugh Jackman. He just wanted to dance, man. Hugh Jackman just wanted to dance, mm -hmm. and they made him deal with gain and gain all these muscles. Um, here's an interesting thing about the Wolverine part of the X Men franchise is that he's the only leading man. All the other top-billed characters in that film are all mm. female. Um, there is He is the testosterone of that film. Uh, and when you think about eccentric X-Men villains, you get, like, Juggernaut, you get, like, Sabretooth, who is his brother, who Lee Schreiber did a fabulous job as. Um, you even get kind of gross-out ones like Toad, who you don't expect, but, like, when people watch the movie, you think about it because visceral. Mm. When I think about problems the MCU has and things that kind of the fandom never picked up on, what I always found out interesting about the secondary leading men of the MCU is unless they were as physically fit mm. as as the core three or the core four, they were yeah. never really sexualized, except for Hawkeye, who eventually became a really popular kind of secondary love interest, like Happy Hogan, um, I've never seen art or fic where he's sexualized, but he's always turned into like a Papa Bear figure. Um, it, it's a yeah. very interesting thing where second, where the secondary males like Phil Coulson, um, there's some mm -hmm. stuff where the guy who plays Phil Coulson is the lead and he's very hunky and the MCU never plays it up. It's almost like they only want one leading man at a time. They can mark it. And then we get to, like, Thor and Star-Lord together. But for some reason, Star-Lord and Drax, they never try to make happen. Uh, not just because Chris Pratt is, by this point, fully homophobic, but more to the point yeah. because they never, like, they never attempt to have two dueling, same handsome level leading men. And I would argue John Favreau is attractive. And so to have neither the MCU mm. nor the fan base ever give him the same chance of being sexualized is kind of 
I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. As someone that's kind of big on body positivity, it almost it almost feels like that same argument about say Power Girl in DC where she has the boob window and like no rib cage. <laughs> and when they introduced Spider Woman, how they introduced her costumes that so was like beyond skin tight. Um, mm-hmm. It's something I thought about was not just the eccentricity of the villains and how much more they started looking human, but about how especially the people that fall in love with the leads never seem to fall in love with the secondary leads in the same way. Like, I can't think of anyone that lusted over Happy Hogan. And I hope I'm wrong, because I think John Favreau deserves lust. Mm. Even though he's not, like, as built and we never see him in a tank top like we see Tony. There's absolutely no reason why Happy Hogan, for instance, can't get that same level of love as as mm. Tony does. Yes. Um, I mean, at this point, uh, as we're going through the second phase and into the third phase... I think the whole thing of the, dare I say, incredibly handsome, heroic-looking white dude, it's becoming such an obvious trope in itself. Um, And for a long time, like, it was thought about as a bit of a problem, but that as time goes on, as the movies were getting more predominance, it was becoming a lot more clear, shall we say. Um, I'm glad you touched upon the elephant in the room, because at some point I wanted to very briefly mention about Chris Pratt. And I yeah, mean, I will I will fully mention because I'm I'm angry and bitter about it. Um, mm. But yeah, so Captain, uh, so um, Gardens of the Galaxy is kind of the secondary big movie of 2014 because Days of Future mm. Past wasn't as well loved. And we're going to talk about X-Men in a different thing because they kind of deserve their own thing. But you yep. had Captain America, Winter Soldier people, and then you had Gardens of the Galaxy. When we first see Chris Pratt as being all tanked out and and goes from being the schlubby, lovable Andy Dwyer to the guy that finds Jesus, dumps his wife and his imperfect child, and then becomes a Marvel leading man. Um, and you can tell by the tone of my voice that I have a lot of feelings about it. And this is also uh, the same church that uh, I think Justin Bieber goes to. Um, and so I have I have a ton of feelings, but Chris Pratt, whether you like him or not, is a Marvel leading man. Um, yes, and I could mm. probably do a whole forty minute stand up routine on this, but I'm I'm not going to. I'm just going to say that I'm still upset that he ended up taking away my Twilight Zone Tower of Terror in Disneyland, um, and that the Gardens of Galaxy movies are fun, but I wish they'd cast somebody else as Star Lord. So there you go. I think that's a sensible position to take on it. I have been upset by, unfortunately, Chris's personal choices. And there is an argument to make that that shouldn't necessarily affect your opinion on the character. And when I'm watching the movies, uh, like I can get into Star-Lord as a character. And I suppose I do see past the actor portraying him. And I enjoy Peter Quill as who he is um the a chap that's usually out of his depth and sort of just slinging his way through with his guns and his walkman and trying to make the best whilst being a normal person in a very and well i say normal person i know that he's the son of ego the living planet 
that was a whole other trip. <laughs> Having said that, yeah, I'm kind of glad that it looks as if Star-Lord might not be coming back for too much more now. Well, they might recast like a new ca- a new actor within the role. Well, he famously wants to go live on a sheep farm, so I think he should. And leave the rest of us alone, and he can have as many homophobic thoughts and have as many perfect Schwarzenegger children as he wants to have. Just leave the rest of us alone, and, you know, yeah. Um, in So, in terms of disappointment, that actually might lead to another, to another good point I want to make, um, whilst I remember it. Um, yeah. How the... Um, Sam and Bucky relationship shipping was um, sort of derailed by one of the own actors. Now, this is skipping forward slightly. It's not touching on one of the movies. It's touching on one of the series. Um, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And do you, do you do you recall what I'm speaking about here? I don't. I because so it's about at this point we're not quite there yet. But after after mm. Logan, I'm going to say, I got really burnt out on Marvel movies. And so okay. I I haven't really, like, I know they're streaming stuff. I've seen GIFs, but I don't have the same relationship with Marvel streaming mm. as I have with Marvel films, okay. per se. Yeah. Mm. Um, so just to give a brief overview of it, um, this is one of the times where um, Disney and Marvel's... Um, control of the narrative slightly failed um and what i mean by that is we've we touched upon previously that it's clear that marvel and disney are trying to keep a tight control over sort of like how the actors are acting in public and how they're portraying the characters to sort of like keep the mcu as really the golden meal ticket it is um and I can freely admit that I'm a I'm a big MCU fan, but I know it's the goose that laid the golden eggs for Disney. Like, you know, it's giving them so much money and so much attention, and they want to keep it going as long as possible. That's why they've mapped out what three, four new phases beyond this one of like what they want to say. And with the um, so what I mean by narrative failing, um. Anthony Mackie, who played Sam, a.k.a. the Falcon, a.k.a. new Captain America, he did a sort of um, buddy cop slash political series with um, Sebastian Stan as the Winter Soldier. And they went on this big adventure together and what have you. And there was a lot of... There was, best, there was new best friend platonic energy between them. But it also led to a lot of shipping energy where they became an established couple in for many people's personal canons. In an interview after the series finished, about a month or so afterwards, Anthony Mackie went on record and said that he personally didn't like the fact that people were shipping Sam and Bucky together, that he saw them as just best friends. And he felt it was slightly ridiculous that people were seeing a romantic subtext there. Um, and that was a personal interview did, and there was a bit of a backlash against that. And now, um, so here's one thing I'm gonna. So, I, uh, no, finish your thought, and then I'll then I'll re, then I'll respond to the thought. I think my 
uh, to yeah. conclude on that, um, just to keep it nice and succinct, to my mind, that was an example. That was an example of what had been becoming a popular ship that was dead in the water because of the basically the actor having an issue with the fandom having a, a certain portrayal of their relationship and i think hmm, that there's a few people in marvel that might have asked him not to have said that be, just because they they know fan shipping brings interest shall we say yeah you know and that's my fault <laughs> i would give the counterpoint that i think people forget that fan fiction is and fan art is still kind of a niche thing um and I will not blame Anthony Mackie for having that opinion. I don't actually know Anthony Mackie's sexuality. He could be straight, he could be bi, he could be pan, I don't know. But it's also kind of weird, because I can't think of anyone that's ever asked Chris Evans about his thoughts about gay Steve Rogers or bi mm. Steve Rogers. And so to ask the first arguably major actor of color because Terrence Howard and Don Cheadle were like really not even part of the Iron Man press. Maybe Don, uh, maybe Terrence Howard more because he played it longer, but to ask the first person of color in your franchise about how they feel about queer shipping, um, which is maybe not something they've experienced before, it may be not something they were prepared for, or it may be something the Marvel exec sent him out to take the flack for as their official position. Um, it's, it, it's just like, I don't think his opinion's bad. He wasn't actively telling people not to do it. It doesn't sound like it wasn't openly homophobic. It was like, I see the character this way. Uh, mm. It's one of those things where like, if Chris Evans had been asked that, I would be less bothered. Uh, if Chris Hemsworth had been asked about the idea of Asgardians being pansexual, which is pretty well Marvel canon for a long time, um, it, it's just one of those things where, like, people really need to have in mind that comic books were not mainstream really for a long time. I'd argue even mm -hmm. the Batman films that were very much DC's kind of staple film for a while because even mm. Superman took breaks. Like, there's, I just, I'll have to gather my thoughts and see if I can think of an appropriate response because I think people may have let that throw water on something. But I will state, because I want to kind of loop back to the main point. Um, mm. I actually like some of the headcanons Guardians of the Galaxy created in fan art. Uh, so we went from Avenger Tower, where everybody lives in like a communal friend's apartment. Mm. The Guardian yeah. of the Galaxy headcanon that Guardians of the Galaxy is just a space D&D &D game gone wrong <laughs> is actually one of my favorite uh, non-sexual um, headcanons, where this is the Avengers playing different versions of themselves in space, where they don't get the game, or they're just doing it to annoy the GM. Um, and so there's this great prevalence of fan art in 2014 that has this wonderful sexual energy, but also there's a great platonic fan mm. art. There's this idea that people have come to think of these people as a family. And so when we get to Avengers Age of Ultron and that first real big split 
um, in 2015, it really is a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. Before we get to 2014, yeah. can you tell me what Marvel animated film that came out in 2014 that is technically part of the five film block that came out in 2014, those first big block of Marvel movies? Oi, um, I cannot off the top of my head. What is 2014 it? was the release date of Big Hero 6, which is the kind of oh. first big feature animated Marvel film, because Big Hero 6 is technically a Marvel oh. property. Um, mm. And so this is interesting, too, because after Big Hero 6 came out, um, mm. the big brother from Big Hero 6 and some of the male characters started getting sexy time treatment as well. Uh, which I am mm, kind of amused by the thought. Yeah, uh, not just Tadashi, but all of them now kind of have fan art for themselves, which is yeah interesting. But yeah, so we're going to go mm. from 2014 to 2015. 2015 is when we get the classically panned reboot of Fantastic Four with Miles Teller and I think Michael mm -hmm. B. Jordan's first turn in the MCU, because I think Michael B. Jordan was part of the Fantastic he, Four remake. He was. He portrayed Johnny. Um, Oh, yeah. oh, that's interesting. I would never, I would never have cast him as Johnny Storm. I can't even that, envision that in my head. That's that well, just sounds weird. Very quick thoughts about the reboot. Oh my god, um, it the tone shifted constantly. At some points, it was a sci-fi film. At other points, it was an interpersonal drama, and then the last twenty minutes went into like deep like sci-fi horror territory um it was all over the place and my partner could not get over um kate mara's wig changes yeah. like every <laughs> he kept grabbing my arm and saying look she's done it again and they've done it again and they've done it that's again a, that that's a bad sign for a movie uh michael b jordan yeah. will return in black panther of course um but yeah so I don't think anybody liked the 2015 Fantastic Four. Certainly the chemistry for the male leads was not there in the way that we no, saw no. with Julie McManon, yeah. Ian Graffold, and uh, uh, Chris Evans. Uh, I do I do enjoy Michael Chiklis, so I'm not mad about that either. Jamie Bell was Thing, wasn't he? If I remember correctly. Uh, um, sure, yes. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely awful. Literally used him for a few scenes. Then he transformed. He and Reed had no actual... There's no evidence, really, of their friendship. That's um, a shame. Because so Ben and Mr. Fantastic are, are big friends in the comic series. That's kind of the whole conceit, you know? They Yeah. I don't want to linger too much, because I feel that we could probably do a mini short on the failed... We could probably do a mini short, actually, just on Fantastic Four... Yeah. as a film franchise property uh, looking at the campy one from 2005 versus the grim dark version a decade later and what they could possibly do when they bring the characters back in the future yeah. uh 2014 2015 is also uh because i do like um some parts of fantastic four people that like the lego marvel films and lego marvel video games this is also when we start to see those rise in prominence. Mm. Um, and so there's no sexy there because they're blocks. Um, <laughs> but that is where you can get an idea of what friendships look like organically because the video games handle it really well. So let's talk about Ant-Man because I think this will be a shorter one to talk about. 
Ant-Man hmm. for me is really the first Marvel property where they cast a leading man not to be conventionally sexy. They ca- they cast Paul Rudd to be kind of really smart, to have chaotic energy and to still be sexy but to be more like not dad bod but dad sexy. Um, mm. like they were going with the age of their kind of consumer audience. Um, I think Ant-Man is probably one of the funnier MCU entries, and really it's because I don't think they foresaw becoming a long-term property. They probably just thought they were doing a one-off. Because um, I don't know how else they talked Michael Douglas into this. Like, I, I can't even imagine that conversation. Um mm. But I think Ant-Man is the first, like, if we're going to talk about Tom Holland, if we end up talking about the Kingsman trilogy, which is also in 2015, which is also a Marvel property, though it's not very well known that it's a Marvel movie, um, Ant-Man is kind of the first dad energy cast leading man, which Paul Rudd has always had, but he's like, he's either your dad or like your fun uncle you see during the summer kind of thing. Uh, It did not keep people from sexualizing him by any means. Um, which I am not against, well, but like there's something very specific uh, comedy dad energy about Paul Rudd that we didn't have in the MCU before. And and yes, that's only been reflected in the multitude of fan art I've seen of him, which has a bit more of a playful bend because he is a bit more, he is quirkier yeah. than some of the other leading men that we've had. Completely agree with you with the um, the dad energy ness to him. I think it comes across because from the start they make it clear that he's had this whole past to himself. He's um, been, you know, he's been entangled with the law. Um, he's got a teenage daughter. Um, he brings along this baggage, and it, it's really good for his character. But it does help come across that he's been for a lot. And that's his mode for redemption. In terms of sexualization, um, there's that infamous shot of him out of the costume and um, like tending to some bruises and such and showing off his incredibly ripped physique, um, which does slightly touch upon a comment we've made before about the fact that Marvel likes to take its leading men and really go full ham making them you know super sexualized sort of thing uh my uh some of my favorite fan art comes out of ant-man uh so there's some things i love about ant-man so if we ever do like a deep dive into these movies ant-man's on my list uh the baskin robbins scene which is very iconic people love um i think ant-man is also the beginning of the side character of louise who does the really great descriptive um retelling of the marvel universe i think he's in the ant-man films uh my favorite thing about the ant-man films though is the randy meeks artwork which is very hot and definitely highlights his um desires to please captain america which is all i'm going to say uh but this is one of my favorite things is that when you think about the playfulness of the marvel universe and i go back to my comment from the first episode of this about how in Mall Rat Stanley is like, why are you all focused on the genitalia of these male superheroes? Um, <laughs> this happens with Ant Man. It doesn't really happen in the first Ant Man because he doesn't become Giant Man until Civil War, uh, but it does mm-hmm. happen. 
Um, and so I think Ant-Man is a nod back to that kind of Mallrats, 2005, Fantastic Four playfulness about what's mm. underneath the costume. Uh, not in a way that feels like super invasive, but in a way that reminds me of the conversations that were had before Khan was mainstream. Maybe some of the conversations that people were having when they were writing the first fan fictions, which were Kirk and Spock. Mm. But Ant-Man feels like it's not a return to form. It feels like it's something for people that don't want to go into a Marvel movie having all the historical knowledge. It feels like <laughs> a film you can watch without having to have watched 14 mm. other films, which is great because no one's got time to watch 14 movies to catch up on the backstory. Uh, that mm. is the major drawback of the MCU now is that you have to have watched 14 films. You can't watch a standalone film anymore. You have to have historical knowledge or you need to know about weird exclusive characters like Beta Ray Bill because they're so up in the end credits. Also, I don't want to have to stay for end credits. I'm just going to say it. Mid credit scenes are mid end credit scenes are done. End end credit scenes are done. Just stop okay. making the movie when you're done with the damn movie. Uh, mm. <laughs> I was holding that in for a long time. Let me tell you what. It's quite all right. This is a a safe forum for you to unburden yourself, dear sir. Well, except uh, everyone on the internet now knows that I don't stay for the end credits of Marvel movies, so I'll probably be... I, I bet they have an end credit scene in Barbie, and I'm going to be booed as I leave the theater in my magic earring Ken cosplay because I didn't stay for, like, the very last second when when they show, like, the super-secret skipper uh, joins the Avengers end cut scene or whatever. Mm. Um, <laughs> sorry, I can't help laugh at that. No, it's fine. It's a... Um, yeah. One, so one little. I have one more point about Ant Man. Did you have anything else you want to say about it before? Uh, Paul Rudd it was very sexy in PS. I uh, I love you, man. Uh, Paul Rudd has always been sexy. Paul Rudd will mm -hmm. always be sexy. Paul Rudd is eternal, ageless, and probably an immortal vampire. Paul Rudd, call me. Um, yes. What were your final thoughts on Ant Man? I was just going to comment that. You were saying about um, Stanley and the comment about um, focus on genitalia and yeah. such, and that you do actually see that um, such was the popularity of Ant Man um, that it did leak through into um, another series. Um, I'll just quickly touch upon this. Um, you know, Amazon's The Boys. Uh, yes, I, I have heard of it, and I have seen some stills on some episodes, and I've enjoyed Jensen Ackles' prolific ass. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, people will probably know what I'm talking about here in reference to. There is a scene, I believe it's the third season. Um, I think it's the first episode. There's basically a hero, or, well, I forget what they call their heroes in this universe um do you remember that what they call them uh i believe i know what you're talking about it's the opener it, of the season and i believe it is the might or someone like that they yes. did they didn't reach very far from the source <laughs> material for that no yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about um a hero with size changing powers and he decides to give a partner a very interesting experience um so yeah, I think that was yeah. lampooning a popular trope from Ant-Man. And but... if we ever do talk about the boys, 
the way that they do the boys is actually not as debaucherous as the comic. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that we see across these kind of revamps in these series is that they're not nearly as like Watchmen. Uh, Watchmen isn't nearly as debaucherous or as brutal as the Watchman film was. Um, also, I guess we can let's uh, we can move into Avengers: Age of Ultron because that was really the big 2015 Marvel film. Uh, this is when, uh, and I did not realize Aaron Taylor Johnson had been in Kickass because the glow up was like so big. And I think mm -hmm. Ultron is the first Quicksilver, um, Scarlet Witch movie who underutilized in the MCU. Sadly, not in MCU X Men at all, even though that's technically where they belong. Um, I mean, they are there as Evan Peters, but it's not quite the same. Uh, Age of Ultron, Paul Bettany can't phone it in anymore. He actually has to come into the office. Uh, Vision weirdly doesn't get sexualized. Um, can't quite figure that out why. Uh, Avengers Age of Ultron is really where you start to see the cracks in the CGI and the cracks in the Marvel decision to not give their actors full scripts anymore. Um, famously, Chris Hemsworth and Paul Rudd talk about this in a Graham Norton interview, where they don't actually know what's going on in Marvel movies because they don't get full scripts anymore. And I think mm -hmm. Age of Ultron is where I can start to see that especially. I don't think it's bad. I think Scarlet Witch especially. If Scarlet Witch is... I can't even remember which Scarlet Witch movie is which. Uh, but if this is the one where Scarlet Witch is in it, I can really start to see the cracks. Uh, Age of Ultron. Yeah, yes. The the sexualization of this kind of grown-up Quicksilver and the relationship Aaron Taylor Johnson, Chris Evans had, especially that gif from them at Comic Con, where like Chris Evans is like touching Aaron Taylor Johnson. I see more of that than I saw of anything else surrounding <laughs> Age of Ultron. Like, I could not even, like, I know the plot surrounds Ultron because it's in the name, but the only thing I can tell you is that during the, the press tour for Age of Ultron, Chris Evan touched a Aaron Taylor Johnson and people, like, gift it in the madness. Yeah. <laughs> Although, they, yes, they did, the, they did that as the real life thing. Um, yeah. I would argue that you got a piece of solid fan shipping from this movie, though. Um, in terms of from Quicksilver, but more his relationship with Hawkeye. Now, I know it was being meant to be portrayed as Hawkeye being a sort of surrogate father figure to both Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, like trying to help them, like which is weird because Magneto is right there and he is their real father, like. If they wanted to bring someone to the universe from X Men, why not? Why? I, I, it just causes so uh, many more questions than answers. It really does. Well, if I remember, just briefly, if I remember correctly, it's all to do with the rights issues again. Now, Sony and Marvel came to deal, if I remember correctly, where they were saying that we would like to use. Um, Quicksilver in one of our movies and um, or we would like to Scarlet Witch and what was agreed upon that Mar the Marvel MCU would be allowed to use Scarlet Witch going forward as a main character so they could bring in a powerful female Avenger to try and um, 
balance the um, gender disbalance a bit more. And in exchange, Quicksilver became a predominant member of Fox's um, uh, X-Men series going forward because of Evan Peters and such. I mean, became a leading X-Men and such. That's why in the movies, you get a glimpse of Scarlet Witch as a little sister to Quicksilver in the X-Men series. Whereas in the MCU, that's why Quicksilver got killed off in Age of Ultron. He well, only had one appearance. In, I think for me, it's... Because Hawkeye, famously in the comics, is not really a put-together character. He's very good at aiming, but everything else in his life as a trade-off is a disaster. Um, quite famously, he is the character outside of Deadpool's that carries the most band-aids in his kit. Uh, and so having Hawkeye making the choice to deviate from canon and do something so explicit in a Marvel movie is an interesting choice. I don't mind the shipping. It just goes to show you how much I don't remember this movie and how much, mm. like, I, I want my movies to be consequential. And when I tell you I remember the press conferences for Age of Ultron more than the movie itself, that does say something. And mm. whether it's a good or bad movie, if at this point it's not memorable, then, you know, that's yeah. a lot of money spent for something to not be memorable. Mm. It was mishandled, sadly. Um, I've gone back and seen it um, a few times now. And in brief, it feels as if at some points they're trying to set up this epic scope as Ultron as more of a threat personally than loki was yeah. to the avengers even though loki had the freaking great big army he was getting um they're trying to make it big him up but for something called the age of ultron the fact that ultron never basically took over the world's computing systems and turned humanity's own creations fully against them it it, it lacks a great deal of something it could have been more finely tuned, but they only they only allowed Ultron to have one movie, yeah, to make a presence. And I mean that that touches upon like one of the MCU's big flaws is the fact it struggles to know how to handle its villains. Yeah. Oh, so so here's the thing too is that that's basically the plot of of D Thief, uh, is someone corrupting is dark seed corrupting cyborg so he can take over the world and cyborg succeeds unwittingly because he's the pandora's box um i think for me too i know we're talking about marvel men but of the movies themselves avengers age of ultron fails but succeeds because of uh medium here where in a comic book, you are a little farther away from the action or closer, depending upon how you read it. Um, we're going to talk about Deadpool soon. And Deadpool has basically always been the fourth wall-breaking character like the Joker is. Yeah. But Age of Ultron would work better as a comic book because it's a series and a comic book character, you know they're going to come back. Death isn't permanent. It's a 2D thing in a book, no matter how much you love them comic book characters are characters and it's very mm. hard to deny that age of ultron expects realism it's part of this big overarching thing 
but you can't do that in film because the nature of Marvel Comics is the same nature of DC, where it's going to get reset, which is going to be a big battle. People are going to die. New people are going to take up mantles. If Marvel's trying to set up a new MGM, then you can't kill off Steve Rogers as Chris Evans, because even if you bring in a new actor, they can't be Steve Rogers. So you either have to create a new Captain America whole cloth, or you have to have a new version of Captain America from canon. Uh, and it creates a discrepancy in the relationship the audience will have, especially ones that aren't comic book fans, so they don't understand why you're killing off a favorite character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a medium thing. And I know it, it's not quite, it, it's kind of dovetailing with the idea of Marvel trying to create a new Golden Age, Metro Golden Mayor, Hollywood system where, where they have all the stars in heavens. But here is Age of Ultron that shows why and how it fails so spectacularly with Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, anyway, I wanted, that was, that was my thought. I hope I didn't interrupt something you were, you were thinking. Oh, oh no, I think we seem to be in quite agreement about the fact that unfortunately, if Avengers represented a high point for the franchise so far, along with a few other products, I feel that Age of Ultron sadly represented one of its low points. At the, um, but, I mean, after that, Marvel did try to kick itself back into gear. And it did start to yeah. produce some very interesting stuff after that. Um, so, uh, because of time, why don't we do this? We are going to talk yeah. about the X-Men at another point. So let's talk about yeah. Deadpool at the other point in time with the X-Men. Because I know that we want to get to Spider-Man Homecoming so we can talk about Tom Holland a little bit. Uh, So let's do Captain America Civil War, because I think Civil War is a very important, very good moment in time. I don't have anything to say about Doctor Strange, or uh, we could talk about Guardians Volume 2, but Guardians Volume 2, let's not talk about Logan, because that's an X-Men. So really we have Civil War, Doctor Strange, and then Spider-Man Homecoming. So I don't have anything about Doctor Strange much. Uh, so do you have anything about Doctor Strange you want to talk about? Not particularly. I can see why they brought Benedict Cumberbatch into um, the franchise. At this point, he was quite popular still from his portrayal of Sherlock in, um, well, the the self-named series, Sherlock, for the BBC. Um, so he did portray a good version of Doctor Strange, and they were... De- but at this point, we are starting to see a bit of fatigue around origin movies. Um, I think they were able to get away with it a little bit by the fact that they were focusing more, starting to focus more on the magic side of the universe. And they, yes, the CGI, it, it's a bit hit and miss sometimes in, in here. But I did like the kaleidoscope effect that they were trying to go for. It had a very nice trippy aspect to it but that's mostly my thoughts about benedict i think he played the part well i Um, think for me doctor strange is an interesting thing because if you have characters that are sexualized for being rebels and characters sexualized for being like responsible father figures benedict as doctor strange is the hybrid of those two things for Mm. me and fan art and fan fiction that's really the only thing i can say about doctor strange also i think Tilda Swinton plays 
um, ancient plays one. as uh, plays as mentor. Yeah, the ancient one, which is weird and kind of fun. Uh, but I think really in 2016, if you weren't enamored with Deadpool, or maybe you were enamored with Deadpool, you were enamored with Captain America: Civil War. This was the yeah. big Marvel property of 2016. Um, I think Civil War not just as an entrance for Tom Holland, because this is really the first time we see him taking up the Spider-Man mantle. Um, this is also really about Falcon taking his place. This is about yeah. Bucky and Bucky and Steve. This is about the breakup of Steve and Tony. This is kind of the precursor to yeah. Ragnarok, where Thor and Hulk are going to have time together. Civil War does a lot. There's a lot going on in this film. You make it sound like one big gay drama. I mean, it uh, is, because, like, like she, having Steve sitting at a table, like, flipping through this, like, big law thing and being like, no, no, what is this about the secret prison under the ocean you're building? You know, it's, you can't get much gayer than Captain America Civil War. Like, there is no mm -hmm. gayer Marvel movie than this, if you want my opinion. Mm, it's basically a, a, a group of friends, they have a big falling out, and then they go for a cat fight outside in the street which pre are and they bring along their new little twink as well who gets involved <laughs> fighting and then you have the massive breakup and the bitch fight and all of this i do basically. like civil war too because civil war also brings us kind of that we go from clean shaven steve rogers who is a bit of a rebel to full-on anti-hero nomad steve rogers and this is where chris evans excels this is what we'll start to see him branch out into things like uh, not, um, the Knives Out films where he plays a full-on villain. Um, Civil War works because Chris Evans as Nomad Steve Rogers doing the right thing works. Like the breakup with him and Tony because Tony just won't see why things are wrong works really well. The, um, the pining of Steve and Bucky isn't resolved but it's taken to a really heightened place. Um, mm. And honestly, Steve's team of kind of rebels and vagabonds and people out of time, the fact that yeah. it doesn't include Thor, but it would have, because there's no way Thor would have sided with um, Tony, is it's such an interesting, like even if you just look at how the two teams are divided on the runway at the airport, I think that's where the battle takes place. It There's is. this interesting thing with who is on what side and who Steve is defending and the side Tony is on. And it's it's almost pitch perfect, different location, but so reminiscent of what Civil War was and what it meant when it first was a comic. And so even outside of the leading men of the MCU, even if for all the noise, Captain America Civil War is really where it was yeah. all headed and it felt like an occasion it kind of felt like the last real marvel occasion movie um mm. and steve rogers was super sexy as daddy rogers being sad and disappointed in everybody i mean you can't you can't beat that with a stick i know i know that the uh, popular theory is that chris evans was dropped because buzz lightyear failed and they blamed him for that but uh, uh but that's but i don't know how many people actually believe that theory and also no. Marvel needs Chris Evans more than Chris Evans needs Marvel. Let's be honest. I um, yeah. No, I don't agree with that theory at all because of the fact that Chris Evans 
is so well known, so popular uh, that it, he's such an attraction. He he is literally a, such a leading. I say leading man. We said that a lot here, but I don't mean that in any sort of negative or detrimental way towards Chris because I think he has the charisma and the talent to really bring something to any role that he's in. I mean, his performance in Knives Out, which you mentioned previously, it was so great and such a different way of seeing him. It was just fantastic. Um, I do feel that, from what I understand, his contract was ended with um, the last uh, Infinity War movie, and he probably had had enough of playing this character, which, by this point, I think he had been doing it for about a decade. And it's anyone's a long time for that. anyone playing one character. Ask the cast of yeah. Are You Being Served. It's a long time to play yeah. any one character. And he wants to do other things. And I completely respect that. So I think, yeah, L- Lightyear's whole, whole thing was a different kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, uh, I would like sorry, to... I, so, so that's an interesting thing you bring up. That is the other side of the kind of Marvel trying to bring back the Pantheon of Stars MGM thing is that they do actually like fumble into people that have this energy like Chris Evans where there's effortless charisma to them where mm-hmm. the catalyst is Captain America and I still have trouble seeing as him as a brunette it's weird to me that he's not a blonde in like real life mm-hmm. um, but it it's one of those things where like both he and his brother Scott have this incredible, playful charisma that really is old Hollywood. Um, And I think uh, Robert Downey Jr. doesn't carry that as much because he has the eccentricities from the 80s still a little bit. Chris Hemsworth is kind of like your favorite foreign-born actor, even though he's white, his like language and the way that he lives his life feels kind of tropical and different from an American-born actor. Yeah. Um, there's something very hometown about Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, you know, as Chris Evans works so incredibly yeah. well. Um, he's kind of like that frat boy that you can love and you can be safe with. I think someone described it once, and that does kind of work mm. in a good it, way. It comes back to what you said before. He's very soft masculinity, um, yeah. and and he it's that's a perfect way to describe him. He he has power he has strength like but at the same time he has like also compassion and empathy and well his whole thing about compassion and empathy is exactly what put him in the spot where he had to make all those decisions in civil war yeah Um, it's it's a new version of steve rogers because for so many years steve rogers was mm -hmm. like a boy scout and then he was a caricature um, which is why he became Nomad, which is why then they ruined him by making him Captain Hydra in that pocket universe Franklin Richards created, which is a whole thing that we don't have time to get into because it's a whole yeah. mashugana. Uh, but there's something about the leading man of this version of the Avengers that we're not, even in Infinity War, they're so different from what they were in Civil War. Yeah. You never really see them again the way that you see them in Civil War. And specifically just because at this point, too, Chris Evans is going to go off. And I think 2016 is when he started to do things like Snowpiercer, where he's getting away from Steve and and he's going to start doing smaller things like uh, 
the movie he did with the little girl that was like really smart. So like he's still playing yeah. that role, but he wants more. And I think mm. people responded to the idea of an actor that had all this fame but wanted more of something interesting. And it worked in the case of Chris Evans. It works for Robert Downey Jr. as the character that has kind of that Phoenix arc in real life where he was at the lowest of the low and then he came back. Um, yes. It gives you both the nostalgia and the redemption. Um, and then Aaron Taylor Johnson goes and does an amazing film like Bullet Train, you know. So it's it's really working. And Mark Ruffalo, of course, is always amazing. And people mm. are just finding out about his film he did with Gwyneth Paltrow, where he played mm. an airline pilot that was great. So yeah, yeah, I yes. So I completely agree with you. Um, so Captain America: Civil War. Um, it came out a year after Age of Ultron. Um, I don't think they were intending it to be so, but to my mind, Civil War almost feels like it's more the worthy successor to the original Avengers. Because at this point, they these people as a team have history. They've got interpersonal relationships. But sadly, um, and this is partly due to the outside interference from Baron Zemo and such, but you could start realistically you're starting to see that they all have different opinions on yeah. what this newly developing emergency emerging heroic superhero scene should look like and it makes sense um and after this sort of like status quo gets broken yeah within the mcu tony starts founding his own team of avengers which leads into other stuff um and you actually see like the main leading men like iron man like cap they're starting to take a back seat as this new wave of new heroes or secondary characters start to take more of a step forward as it were and um, silver war is also too i think civil war this is also where we see more of natasha's backstory we see some of it in age of ultron yeah. i feel like mm. But also, this is where we start to see they're not just doing a Scarlet Witch as a one-off. It feels like they try to give us more of Natasha. It's going to lead into the um, the film with her and her family. Uh, so it's really it's really neat uh, to be able to give Black Widow the due she deserves because she's a Ooh. big deal in the Marvel yeah. comics. Yes. Oh, and really, before if nothing else, the one last point I should really make. Before... Uh, if I make no other point on this episode, this is the film, not only Spider-Man and um, Black Widow getting some screen time, think about it, this is also where we met um, I'm going to get his name wrong, uh, Chakal? Um, uh, Black, Black Panther, Panther, yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to call him Black Panther because I'm going to butcher the name, so I'm just going to call him Black Panther. This is the moment where Mar you can tell that Marvel afterwards started to try and make some efforts towards diversity yeah. <laughs> didn't always work but they tried uh yeah. all right so there's two things to do here as we're getting close to the end of the episode uh gardens of the galaxy volume two is well loved for being like a father to son figure uh picture film we haven't really touched on yandu because i really didn't want to talk about chris pratt for an extended period of time uh, mm -hmm. But Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 2 is a really great film, not for the family, but about family, if that makes sense. 
they, they do rely a little too heavily on phallic humor, but that's also the franchise. So if we ever talk about the Guardians of the Galaxy as its own thing, minus my Chris Pratt hatred, we can do that at some point. But I want to give you kind of the last seven or so minutes to talk about Tom Holland, because we're going to go from Captain America Civil War, and then we're going to get Spider-Man Homecoming the next year, which is his ascension, and which is the first hybrid film from Marvel with Columbia Pictures. So Spider-Man mm. Homecoming is kind of the first Sony collaboration with Marvel, because um, I don't think Columbia Pictures was actually a 20th Century Fox offshoot. So Spider-Man Homecoming is actually like a two a two studio production, as far as I can tell. Mm. So the floor is yours. You got six minutes to talk about the Spider Twink, as I've set you up for that. And we can we'll, <laughs> we'll do more about Spider Twink next episode. But you can start on Spider Twink and give us like a preview <laughs> of of what's wonderfully is it going to be a trilogy about the men of Marvel, uh, the Marvel MCU. Really, it's very yeah. fitting. Yes. <laughs> well. I suppose you could see it like a free act play almost. Um, the the establishment, uh, the drama, and then the new young prince that walks onto stage and claims his throne, except something like that. Um, no, anyone okay. that knows you two knows that you love Tom Holland as Peter Parker too. Like that's kind of for me. That's one of your trademarks. Is that I feel mm. like that's your favorite version of Peter Parker um is is tom holland i mean i could be wrong but that feels feels accurate to me i like all of the live action peters for very different reasons um i feel toby's portrayal was wonderfully nerdy and you i enjoyed the transformation whereas i don't think there was such a stark transformation for either andrew or tom now, Andrew, I just enjoy his quirk. Uh, and with Tom, I feel that Tom quickly became the the persona of of basically Marvel's twink in residence, shall we say. Now, this it, it is problematic, I will admit, because of the fact that technically this version of Peter is a high school student. And there, I completely understand where people are coming from with that, and um, I accept it in that as the character that is something to be acknowledged, etc. However, it's really difficult not to see Tom Holland playing Peter and not see Tom Holland, and Tom Holland is very easy on the eye when they looked for someone to portray um peter parker they did exceptionally well finding tom holland as him because he bought something new to the mcu that hadn't really been in there before and that was a good deal of sort of like new hero new youthful exuberance for the role now cap was great in the sense of steve um chris evans portrayal of cap was great but <laughs> even when he was like skinny um chris rogers he didn't come across as like young and exuberable um 
That's because he was dying of consumption the entire time. Before they fixed mm-hmm. him with drugs, he was just like on death's door like 90% of the film. So Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, he basically became mega jacked very quickly. And it was the same with all the rest of them. Um so I instantly I was quite drawn to Tom's portrayal of Peter as this really exuberant, really youthful thing. And he brought a good deal of comedy to the role. Uh, um there's a nice bit of quirk in there as well. But I don't know. I think Tom does comedy well, but he's always been slightly more he, he I think if he had the choice, he would he wouldn't mind doing more serious roles. You've seen it with a bunch of recent stuff he's done that he's been stretching his acting talents in that direction or trying to do more serious things. But yeah. anyway, um basically everyone else was hunky jockey to various degrees and then all of a sudden you have twink and this is why you see so many pairings of peter with all of the older men within the mcu uh, sometimes more than one at a time yeah exactly people just love seeing a daddy boy relationship um and if in canon uh, by the way, I so, do need I do need to say that it is yeah. consensual and he's always done a beige. Because yeah. when I've yes. done theater stuff where it's stuff like that is even alluded to, like I've had straights that like yeah. just got up in arms in our age. So it's never it's it's I, I've never seen it be non-consensual and I've never seen him be anything other than even a young 18 being 18. So Oh yeah. Everyone that does it has drawn that line. So that line does exist for the people listening going like, really? But but yeah, so it's it's a thing that is oh, no. a it's a queer culture thing that I want us to be able to parse out the next episode because something about Tom Holland's Peter Parker that intrigues me is he's really the first heir to the throne in Marvel. Yeah. And so the idea of having a mentor is just not something we've ever seen. Peter Parker have. He always had Uncle Ben, but Uncle Ben is a ghost. He's a forest ghost, essentially. He's um, a reason. He's not a... Yeah. Um... He, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, Tony Stark and then the Jake Gyllenhaal Mysterio, it's really a new take on Spider-Man that doesn't exist in any other MCU yes. universe. And that is very interesting. Yes. No, definitely. And I completely agree with you. Um with what you were saying about the potential side of things and stuff like that. Um, I should have made that clear. Um, yeah. Because I, all the betrayals and all the art I've ever seen, people have been very clear to make it that, you know, he's college age, basically. And that is really the age that people, sh- you know, should be having him for if they're doing any work with him and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and, yeah. So that is what we were seeing. And... <sighs> The thing is, Marvel feeds into this. I mean, I cannot believe that they didn't look at Tom Holland and his portrayal of Spider-Man and then look at all of the older men that they were putting with him as mentors and, like, you know, as guides and stuff like that. And there wasn't some cynical thoughts there, shall we say. Yeah. They they know the power of fanshipping. And I think this is a great start to a conversation that is kind of long overdue 
Um, I think for a long time, superhero-dom, especially in kind of the big two comics, because there's not really a big third rail comic anymore. Uh, there's lots of indie now, which is great. But Marvel and DC kind of have been the go-to for a while. Sometimes Image is around, sometimes other things. Mostly it's been Marvel DC. Um, and to have such mind-bogglingly straight spaces be something where queerness can inhabit as subtext, um, now it's more overt, which is really nice. But for a long time, it was just subtext. Uh, you can still kind of see that in fandom, even in younger fans, because there's such a rich history in both Marvel and DC, but especially Marvel, of having these, you know, groups of heroes together with these dynamics that are very interpersonal and definitely can read both romantic, both as friendship and what have you. And I think Tom Holland as Spider-Man is going to be a really good way to kick off the end of the trilogy for the next episode. And it's an important conversation to have. Like, the fact is, is that if you cast Tom Holland as, say, North Star, who is an openly gay X-Man, would the vibe still be there, you know? And so we're going to talk more about Tom Holland as Spider-Man. Uh, we're going to keep going through. Uh, the third part of the trilogy should get us all the way to hopefully Venom and beyond, because I kind of want to talk about Venom, uh, Venom as a case study um, going the opposite direction, where they tried to make <laughs> Eddie Brock as messy and least sexy as possible, and it definitely backfired in a big way because it's Tom Hardy. Um, I am very biased, of course, but that is what it is. Uh, anyways, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time for the next part of the June Jubilee, uh, Magnus's birthday, uh, where we're talking about the Men of Marvel, and then after that, probably we'll be premiering something just for the summer. We're experimenting with a bit of a shorter format uh, for August leading up into our busy gay Christmas slash Halloween season, because that's what Halloween is, gay Christmas. Um, and so we're going to see if we can do shorter episodes about things that we really love, but we maybe can't do like an hour and a half on. Uh, but we definitely have enough going for Marvel. I'm not quite having Once Upon a Time flashbacks yet, but there's a lot. Um, even just talking about the leading men, not talking completely about the films themselves, there's a lot to uncover there about our queerness, about how we reflect the time of our superhero, and about how things change as things become popular and you have to start doing a formula, you don't feel like you can take as many risks. And with Marvel having bought out, especially in the movie universe, so many other smaller properties, it's or bigger properties too, like Star Wars, it's, it's an interesting thing to watch happen and to see how the audience really participates in that, both in the movies and in fandom and in heteronormativity versus queerness and the backlash and the front lash and all the lashes. Um, but it's a great conversation. I'm glad to have it with you and I'm glad for the audience listening in. Uh, and we'll see you next time on Everything is Gay, Even the Straight Stuff. Have a good night.